Our Old Testament reading this morning is from the book of Daniel, the second chapter, beginning in the 24th verse. Therefore Daniel went into Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went and said thus to him, Do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Bring me in before the king, and I will show the king the interpretation. Then Arioch brought in Daniel before the king in haste and said thus to him, I have found among the exiles from Judah a man who will make known to the king the interpretation. The king said to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, Are you able to make known to me the dream that I have seen and its interpretation? Daniel answered the king and said, No wise men, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show to the king the mystery that the king has asked. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Your dream and the visions of your head as you lay in your bed are these. And then down to verse 45. Just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, a great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain, and its interpretation sure. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell upon his face and paid homage to Daniel and commanded that an offering and incense be offered up to him. The king answered and said to Daniel, Truly your God is God of gods and Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this mystery. Then the king gave Daniel high honors and many great gifts and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. Daniel made a request of the king, and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon. But Daniel remained at the king's court. In the New Testament reading, it's from the second chapter of the Gospel of Matthew, beginning in the first verse. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where, Christ, where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word, that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt. And remain there until I tell you, 
for Herod is about to search the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. After we've heard the word read, let us stand and confess our faith. Church, what do you believe? We believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. We believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who is conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he shall come to judge the living and the dead. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. I like the title so much. I, I, I sat and, and thought about a different title, and I just couldn't. I said, nope, I'm going to stick with this. What are Magi, Matthew, and what are they doing in your gospel? Last week we saw and heard Rabbi Jesus do the unthinkable. He called a tax collector, a tax collector named Matthew to be a disciple. This was nothing short of scandalous. No rabbi in Jesus' day would even consider an application by a tax collector to be a disciple. There were no tax collectors following any rabbis in Israel in Jesus' day. This was proven as the religious leaders, as the Pharisees, were incensed that Jesus would go to Matthew's house and eat with him in his house, and not only with him, but eat with all the other tax collectors of that region. These tax collectors were numbered with the unclean. They were swine. They were untouchable by righteous folks. Jesus was making, we saw this, Jesus was making a statement. The first requirement of any disciple, would you follow Jesus? The first requirement is that he be a sinner. Jesus said to these Pharisees, and they complained, I didn't come to call the self-righteous. I came to call sinners to repentance. We know this. You want to join Christ Presbyterian Church? You want to join a classical church, Christian church, anywhere in the world? The first question you must answer is this. 
Do you believe that you are a righteous person? No. Do you believe that you are a sinner without hope except in his sovereign mercy? That was a confession when you joined this church or any church that is based on biblical theology. So we don't say with the self-righteous. We don't marvel that, well, well, he, he saved that tax collector. No, that's not what we do. We marvel that he saves us. Unless we confess that we are numbered with the sinful tax collectors, we cannot be disciples of Jesus. But that was last week. This week, we look at Matthew, the writer of the first gospel. No other gospel writer, you need to know, we read about the, the Magi this morning. No other gospel writer includes the Magi in their record. Matthew alone tells us of these strange men. So we will ask Matthew this morning, Matthew, what are Magi? <laughs> what are they doing in your gospel? Why are they there, Matthew? But before we hear Matthew's answer, I want to ask each one of you, a serious question. What is the bottom line? What is the ultimate authority in your life? Now, I don't want a Sunday school answer. I want you to tell me this morning. I'll tell you whether how small you are, how young you are, whether you're in high school, junior high, whether you're 95 years old. I don't care. I want you just like it calls on me, I want us to answer that question individually this morning. Now think about it. If you're in elementary or high school, you have several authorities in your life. You have your parents. You're under their authority. You have your teachers and coaches at school. You're under their authority. In high school, when we're 15, 16, 17 years old, we struggle against the authority of our parents. We struggle with the authority of our parents. We want to be our own authority. As adults, we're still under authority. Why do we pay income taxes? Why do we pay property taxes? Why do we obey, obey speed limits? We're under the authority of city and state and federal governments. In our vocation, in our vocations, we're under the authority of businesses or institutions with the, for whom we work. Husbands and wives struggle. Who, who will be the bottom line authority in our home? Sometimes we give authority to our, to our appetites. If money is the most important thing in our lives, then money, if that's the most important thing, money will become the utmost authority in our lives. We can become slaves to money, to material things, to pride, to drugs, to alcohol. Addictions can become the ultimate authority in our lives, and it's the worst kind of addiction. The worst kind of slavery 
to an ultimate authority. So this morning, what is the ultimate authority in John Sartell's life? What's the ultimate authority in your life? Don't just say, well, Jesus is. No, I really want to know. Looking at our lives this week, what's the ultimate authority? The major theme, why I'm asking this, the major theme of Matthew's entire gospel is the ultimate authority of Jesus, the ultimate authority of the Messiah, the ultimate authority of the true king. In, in, even in Matthew's story of the birth of Jesus, the theme is clearly seen. We pass over this sometimes. When Joseph discovers that Mary is pregnant, the woman to whom he's engaged, when he discovers that she's pregnant, what does he do? He knows the child's not his. He assumes unfaithfulness on her part. So he plans to divorce her in that day. Engagement was a contractual thing. And he was going to break the contract because she had broken it. He was exercising his right. He had the authority to divorce her. But God sends Joseph a message through an angel, a dream. In a vision. The message is this. Joseph, Mary is pregnant by the power of God. She will give birth to the promised one of Israel. Question. Does Joseph divorce her? No. But look at verse 24. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord suggested. No. God doesn't speak that way. When Joseph woke from the dream, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. Joseph was not the ultimate authority. Even if he still desired, he was not the ultimate. Says, Joseph said, no, God's the authority in my life. And he said to do this, and I'm going to do it. Now, Matthew, the next words, introduce the Magi. And it is the same thing, folks. Matthew tells us a strange story that we don't read in Mark, we don't read in Luke, we don't read in John. You know, sometimes we, we are asked a riddle, or we ask a riddle. But it's usually we're, we're asked a riddle, it may be on a quiz, it may be on a Something that measures, supposedly measures our intelligence. Just a riddle. Here's a group of, here's a, here's a group. And in this group, you have an apple, you have an orange, you have a pear, and you have a dog. What doesn't belong, Luke? The dog. Dog. I always wanted Luke, I always wanted to look out and see who is asleep and ask the question. But I knew you, would, you were paying attention and you would know the answer. Well, in this story, the Magi are the dog. The Magi, 
They don't belong. The presence of the angels appearing to Mary and Joseph and then the shepherds, they don't mystify us. If he's a son of God, we expect heaven. We expect the angels to be present if he's the son of God. The virgin birth is understandable. If he's a son of God, we should expect the supernatural. Zechariah, Elizabeth, Mary, Joseph, the shepherds, they were all Jewish. They belong. But the Magi, how did they know? Why did God in his providence bring these guys into his story? Folks, actually, the story of the Magi is not strange historically. It's really not. Let's look at Matthew 2, 1. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, where is he who's been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it, was, when it rose, and we have come to worship him. The Greek word Matthew uses here to describe these men is magi. It is the word, it's the word from which we get our word magic or magician. The NIV translates the word magi. We in the ESV in the King James Version, is wise men. Both are good translations. If you had walked into Matthew's mind, you would know that he considered these men, the Magi, he considered this word as a title for an elite, scholarly, royal group of men from Persia. They were sort of like a fraternity of men. We first hear of the Magi in the 7th century before Christ. They were a community of scholars, leaders, teachers in Media Persia, in the Persian Empire. Remember, this is the empire that conquered Jerusalem under Nebuchadnezzar and carried off Israel into exile, completely destroyed Jerusalem and Judea, wiped it out and took most of the occupants, most of the citizens back to Babylon. Well, these Magi studied astronomy. They they identified themselves as followers of a philosopher, a religious figure named Zoroaster. He was a monotheist. He was like a Jew. He, He said, there's one God. And he developed a whole movement, a religion that dominated Persia. Darius the Great made Zoroaster's religion, the state religion of Persia. The Magi were the astrologers, the wise men who advised the king. Remember in Daniel this morning, we read the king was upset because the Magi could not tell him about his dream and what it meant. He was used to going to these men. Nebuchadnezzar was used to going to these men and they would give him the answer. Well, they didn't have the answer. Now, why am I telling you this? Well, look back at the passage we read this morning to Daniel 2, 47. The king said to Daniel, surely your God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries. For you were able to reveal this mystery. 
Then the king placed Daniel in a high position and lavished many gifts on him. He made him ruler over the entire province of Babylon. That's not the whole empire, but just at the area of Babylon. He became a ruler there and placed him in charge of all its joy, all its wise men. He became a leader of this group of men. Daniel would have been a magi. A young Jewish leader was placed in charge of the whole of the magi of Babylon. He became their mentor. Certainly they heard from him about the Old Testament scriptures, about the Jewish prophets, about a coming Messiah. They would hear that story from Daniel. You must remember that some of the Persians were converted when the Jews lived in their cities. There was also a large Jewish presence that remained in Persia, the, the, the area of Persia, even when Christ was born. Most of Israel did not come back to Israel. A great number stayed in Persia, in the area of Babylon. The point is this, that 500 years before Jesus, 500 years before Jesus was born, God was preparing to bring these wise men to Bethlehem. God's providence has ruled the past. The events around the birth of Jesus had been in preparation for centuries. So here come the Magi. It makes sense. Now this is the first record of Gentiles. Right at the beginning, this is the first record of Gentiles bowing down to Jesus. Now many, as you can imagine, many readers of Matthew's gospel did not like this. What were these outsiders doing here? Why, why are these foreign dignitaries here? After all, these, these are the people, they represent the nation that destroyed Jerusalem, that carried us off into exile. They do not belong here with our Messiah. That sounds familiar. Sounds like something that might come from us if we were in similar circumstances. Other players belonged, as we said. The shepherds belonged. Mary and Joseph belonged. Simeon belonged. Anna belonged. Zacharias belonged. Not the Magi. We still land. We, we've, we saw it historically. It makes sense. But what was God doing? What was God's purpose? This would be like the British celebrating the birth of George Washington. They don't celebrate July the 4th in England. People, here's what God was doing. God was prophetically speaking about the future of the great kingdom of Jesus Christ. Now, I could have chosen hundreds of scriptures to do this. I only chose one for the sake of time. I chose Isaiah 49.6. He's speaking to the Messiah. And I want you to listen to what he said. Now, this is all through the Old Testament. It is too small a thing for you to be my servant to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I've kept. He said, it's too small a thing for you just simply to bring back the exiles and unite Israel. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. That's a theme of all the Old Testament. 
the salvation, Jesus, the words about Jesus going to the ends of the earth, the message of the gospel going down, that didn't start with Jesus. That began in the Old Testament. It began in passages like Isaiah 49, 6. The Messiah will bring salvation to Gentiles and at the birth of the Messiah. God brought Gentile leaders to bow before him. That's what my kingdom will be. They belonged. But most of all, it made sense because of the person of Jesus, the king. Matthew, you must know this. We just finished a study in the gospel according to Luke. Luke didn't do this. Luke wrote about him being the son of God. wrote about him being king, but not like Matthew. No other gospel speaks of Jesus as being king. As being sovereign. No one speaks more about the authority of Jesus than Matthew. Maybe the thing that is most telling is found in verse 11. Look at it. And going to the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother. And they fell down and worshipped. They didn't really bring in gifts and respect him. They worshipped. They bowed down to him. These foreign leaders, wise men, knelt down in worship. They had traveled a great distance to see this one who had been born. And what did they ask? When they arrived in Jerusalem, and Jerusalem was, uh, gossip was everywhere about this great caravan from the east and these men. What was this about? What did the wise men, what did the Magi first ask the leaders in Jerusalem? Where is he who has been born king? Of the Jews. Circle that. King. That's what all Matthew is about. Where's this one who was born king of the Jews? That's the scene. At the beginning of Matthew. His authority. The angel commanded Joseph, don't do this. And then here come the Magi. Bowing down. Gentiles bowing down. Before this king in Israel. This is echoed on every page through Matthew. Let's go to the end of Matthew. The last scene in Matthew. Jesus is leaving to go home. Home to glory. And what does he say to his disciples? To the disciples that he called. What does he say to them? What are his last words? Look at Matthew 28, 18. And Jesus came to them and said, all authority, not some authority, not just religious authority, not just moral authority, not just scripture authority. He said, all authority, all authority in heaven with the angels and on earth. All authority has been given to me. That is why Matthew told the story of the wise men from Persia. And it's the whole theme of the whole gospel of Matthew. He's a king. And even when he was a baby, they came from Babylon to bow down before him. So the question, that's why I asked the question this morning. Who's your authority? Who's your ultimate authority? Of course you have parents. Of course you have coaches and teachers at school. Of course you have governmental authority. But who's the ultimate authority? (laughs) And some of you being really smart Alex would say, my husband, 
or some of you being smart enough to say, my wife, whatever. No, who's the ultimate authority in your life? There is one. Every one of us, every single one of you have an ultimate authority. Let me tell you, Herod would have none of it. Here was the wise, wise men, they bowed down. Herod would have none of it. He tried to kill this would-be king. Why? I don't want him messing with my authority. I'm the king. There's no other king. Not here in this region. Herod would have none of it. Make no mistake about it, people. Jesus, if your authority lies somewhere else besides him, Jesus is the ultimate authority to whatever that authority is. He will not live with it. He'll not live with his disciples who have some other bottom line authority. Paul got Matthew's theme. He understood it. In, in that great beginning of Philippians chapter 2, it was probably a hymn in the New Testament or a confession, like a creed in the New Testament. And he wrote so poetically about the incarnation and then he, and how the Son of God became flesh. And then he said, therefore, God has highly, this is Philippians 2, 9. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, above every name, above every authority, so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. In heaven, the angels will bow and on earth. Every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is what? Is Lord, is the authority. That was the theme of Matthew's gospel. Now go back to my question. Who's the ultimate authority in your life? If you don't answer Jesus and really mean it, not a Sunday school answer, but a real answer. You struggle with it every day. But you say, he's my ultimate authority. But I must tell you this. We're coming to the table this morning. And the Magi and their gifts contain a powerful prophecy about this king, about his kingdom, and about this table. In Matthew 2, 11, Then opening their treasures, they offered him, not his parents, they offered him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. You know, you can ask people, at least you could 20 years ago, you could ask even, uh, you could ask people in Fayette County, well, who, you know, what did the wise men bring? Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Everybody knows that, or knew that. Why didn't God just say, why didn't Matthew just write, they gave him great treasures. Did you ever ask yourself, why named gold? Why named frankincense? Why, there's a reason for it. In Persia, it's a well-known truth. You didn't approach a king without gold. Gold was confession that he was the king. This most precious gift. You were coming and bringing the most precious thing you had saying you're a king. Seneca, the Roman writer, noted that it was a custom of Persia to always approach a king with gold. In ancient Persia, no one would approach a king without gold. You see, they came and they brought him gold. They were saying, he's a king. 
This baby is a king. What about the frankincense? The Greek, the Greek word there is labanos. It's where we get our word albino. It simply means to be white. That's what it means. Albino was a white resin. It was bitter. It was glittering, bright. It, it came from an incense tree. This was the incense used, Albano, Labano, was the incense used by the priest in the temple. Stood for the prayers of the priest. So you're saying, with the gold, the baby is a great king. With the, with the frankincense, the baby is a great priest. But then there's myrrh. Myrrh was an expensive incense used, specifically used for burial. Remember... Remember when Joseph Arimathea and Nicodemus asked for the body of Jesus and they took it and they anointed it? They used myrrh. Look at John 19, 19, 1939, excuse me. Nicodemus also, who had earlier come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. The Magi brought for his birth. But it would be used. Nicodemus brought myrrh. For his death. The shadow of the cross was over the child. Gold for the king, frankincense for the priest, myrrh for the sacrifice. Well, that's it. We see in this Jesus of the throne, king, the authority to the ends of the earth. And we see Jesus of the cross. In these gifts. There's a choice. Between what the wise men did. And what Herod did. Some of us would say. Jesus I love you as king. I love your kingdom. But I don't like this cross business. I don't like this myrrh thing. All over this nation today. There are people in. So-called churches. And they're no more than moralists. They like the teachings of Jesus, but they say, you know, I, I don't need this Jesus of the cross. I'm, I'm sure God accepts me just like I am. I'm a good person. I'm a moral person. Jesus, I want, I want you to come and bring, I love your teaching. Bring your crown. I'll follow you. Just leave the cross outside. That Jesus can't come in. You see, he has nail-scarred hands. Jesus, what are, what are those scars? They're the cross that you don't want in your life. You see, I'm a savior. And I'll not be your king. Unless you come to the cross. That's why we're coming to this table this morning. That's what we're saying. Now some of us would say. Jesus. Come in. Bring your cross. I'm a sinner and I need a savior. But leave your crown outside. Leave your authority outside. Leave your word outside. I want you to save me. But I like my life the way it is. I don't want to. You know. 
I want to be the authority in my life. But if you don't take him as king, he won't be your savior. He can't come into your life. This morning, have you bowed before Jesus on the cross? I'm a sinner. I need a savior. Have you done that? But have you also bowed before Jesus on the throne? In a moment, we're going to pray a prayer of confession. And in that prayer of confession, you will say this. You are king of heaven and earth and king of my soul. I submit to you. Have you done that? Is Jesus, is Jesus Christ, Jesus the Christ, have you looked him in the eye and said, I submit to you, you are the authority. And you'll close that prayer by saying, under your reign, I rest my soul. And there's no better place to rest your soul than in the kingship of Jesus Christ.